0: Well, I just want to say, hi, my name is Jason. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Madison Church. And yes, I am donning the whole Madison Church apparel. They pay me to do this. No, not really. I just actually happen to have this on today. And I happen to be drinking from my Madison Church cup. So that's what we do. Uh, but anyway, you too can find this on Amazon.com for ninety nine ninety nine. But we're not here to talk about Madison Church swag or anything else we're talking about relationships and when it comes to emotionally healthy relationships that we're we've been addressing the one thing that gets in the way of emotional health in relationships more than anything else is this thing called conflict now i love the old peanuts cartoon that says this i love mankind it's just the people i can't stand isn't that true i love mankind i love people it's just the people I can't stand. So here's the reality. We have conflict. Now, unless you're one of those people who says, you know what, Jason, I don't have conflict. I get along pretty much with everybody and anybody else. Let me give you a quick true or false test to just see how you do and if you actually have conflict. First question, true or false? And then just answer this in your heart. You know God's listening. True or false? During this last year, I have posted a comment on somebody's uh, social media wall regarding my disagreement with them about a certain heated issue. True or false? Next question, true or false? While posting on that person's wall, I really thought to myself, this person is such an idiot. If only they were as latent as me. I answered that. Now, true or false? This person's wall was Stephen (laughs) Feast. We love Pastor Stephen, don't get me wrong, but some of you have probably posted that on his wall one or two times. Next question, true or false, while driving, I have intentionally either slowed down, sped up, or flashed certain nonverbal hand signals to another driver. Some of you have done that. I've driven next to you while you've done that. Just be honest. True or false, I have done all three of these to the same driver. True or false, there is somebody in my family that I would like a DNA test done on because there is no way we could be related And the final question, true or false, that person is sitting next to me right now. Don't answer that one, whether you're at home or in the church building, but whatever it is, we all have conflict. We all have missteps with people because people we just get in the way of each other. And so what do we do when we have this conflict? Because it's gonna come, it's it's just gonna be there. And so. I just want to take a few minutes today to talk about what we do with conflict because it's a huge thing. It's a huge issue in our life. It's a huge issue in our relationships. And if we want to have emotionally healthy relationships, we've got to deal with it. Thankfully, you don't have to take my word for it. You can look to actually the brother of Jesus. Jesus. His name was James. He wrote about conflict in James chapter 4, and he said some very fascinating things. We're going to read uh, about 10 verses, and then we're going to come back to them throughout the message. James writes this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? In other words, why is there conflict? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, (laughs) tell us how you really feel, James. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Now he kind of gets to the point. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. There it is. In a nutshell, James talks about this thing called conflict. And he talks about how our relationships get all flipped upside down because of these two things, pride, and the opposite of it, which can bring us good, is this thing called humility. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is this, will you and I allow pride to tear down our relationships or humility to build them up? That's the question James is asking of us. Will you allow pride to tear them down or humility to build them up? He says we're going to go one way or another, and some of us go down the road of pride. See, pride at its very root is saying it's all about me, that life is full of me. In fact, one of the definitions we often use of somebody who is proud is we say he's just so full of himself or she's just so full of herself. See, when I'm full of me, everything is pointed to me, everything is about me, everything is centered on me. And I don't have room for you in a life full of me. And when everything's full of you, everything is about you. It's centered on you. It's always brought back to you. And you don't have room for me and a life full of you. And so when I, full of me, bump into you, full of you, conflict ensues. Because there's not, a, not enough room for the both, both of us. Because we've only allowed enough room for ourselves. And so the question remains, how does that play out? How is it that pride, when it becomes so full inside of us, how does it destroy us? Well, I think it says several things. The first thing that pride says is, life isn't giving me what I want. Life isn't giving me what I want. See, at the root of pride, James says in verse 2, "Are our desires or our wants. Look at verse 2. Don't fights and quarrels come from desires that battle within you? So here's the picture he's painting. When I have a list of desires and wants in my life and I don't get them, something happens inside of me. This battle starts to just go on inside and I am so discontent and I'm so angry all the time. And so when I don't get the grades that I want, when I'm not making the money that I want, when I'm not living in the house that I want, when I don't have the spouse that I want or the girlfriend that I want or the boyfriend that I want or The kids that I want. I'm more likely to have conflict with you. So all I do is I worry about it. I think of what I need to get those things. And I get angry inside because I still don't have those things. So if you just happen to be near me while I'm having this conflict inside, that conflict inside is going to come out. The battle inside always comes out. I'm going to get mad at you for the smallest and most insignificant reasons. Or I'm going to retreat and give you the cold shoulder for no reason at all. See, here's the point, and James is saying this. My issue, it's not actually you. My issue is me. My issue are the things that I want and I can't get. And because I can't get that, I have to take it out on somebody. So let me ask you, how have the battles within you spilled out over into somebody close to you? Have they simply been in your line of fire because they're just there and really it's just about the issues inside of you? causes conflict. See, pride says, I'm not getting what I want from life, but pride also says, you're not becoming what I want. You're not becoming what I want. Ruth Graham was once interviewed by a television reporter and the television reporter asked her this question, Ruth, have you ever considered divorcing your husband, Billy Graham. And she didn't hesitate at all. She said, divorce, no. Murder, yes. I love that. Divorce, no. Murder, yes. And and I think one of the reasons she said this, because when it comes to relationships, we have certain expectations on people to make our life better. And when we don't see those expectations met, those people, we don't want anything to do with them. In other words, we say to them, for my life, again, the issue is about me, not about you, it's about making my life good. For my life to work, I need you to be this, or I need you to do that. we say this all the time in different ways. We say it to our kids, no matter how old they are, when we say things like, you just never learn, do you? We say it to our husbands when we say, Why do you never help out around here? We say it to our wives when we say things like, why don't you encourage me like I see my friends' wives encouraging their husbands? We say it to our siblings, our friends, our fellow students when we say, I can't deal with you anymore. That is the last straw. You see, too often we assume that our contentment in life is based on somebody else's actions towards us. And James is saying it just doesn't work. Because if you live in that way, it's going to set yourself up for failure. And it's going to cause all sorts of conflict. So pride says, you're not becoming what I want. Pride says, life isn't giving me what I want. But pride also says this, you have what I want. You have what I want. Look at verse 2. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. In other words, you have what I want. I'm coveting you. And coveting or envy is a direct result of pride. Remember, pride is all about making me the center of everything. And so when I don't have what I want and you have it, I want to take it from you and give it to me. Because that's the way I think life should be. I think Harold Coffin is right when he says this. Envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. Envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. In other words, you have what I want. You know, it'd be easy to just think, oh, you know, that's for other people, and that's for people who really aren't as mature as I am. But I'm a pastor, and I think these things all the time. I remember a few years ago, I spent a holiday weekend at my brother's house, and I pulled up to his house, his million-dollar house, and I don't have a million-dollar house. And I thought, huh, his house is a lot nicer than my house. I looked at his brand-new Ford Mustang, and I looked at my 2007 Ford Freestyle, which had 180,000 miles on it, and I thought, well, I don't have the Ford Mustang. And I looked at him, and I looked at me, and I looked at his life, what he has and what I don't have, and I looked at my brother, and I thought, you have what I want. A little bit later that weekend, we went to his church, and on Sunday morning, we visited the church that he goes to, and ironically, his pastor is a friend of mine, and hey, here's a little dirty secret about pastors that I want to let you in on. When we go into a church, we're always evaluating the other pastor. We're kind of measuring ourselves up next to them. Now, Stephen doesn't do this, but the rest of we pastors do this, and we always think, is this guy as good as me, or is this lady as good as me? And and I was thinking, oh, how how am I better than them? <laughs> it's really messed up. But anyway, this guy was giving a, a message and I was thinking to myself, you know what, I'm going to be able to think through how he could deliver this message better, how he could do this or do that or say this phrase better and how if I were given the opportunity, we'd reach far more people than he's reaching right now. But the reality is, when I went in, there wasn't much room to sit down because so many people were there already. There's one of the fastest-growing churches in the country. And that already ticked me off a little bit. And then we sat down, and the music was amazing, and he got up to speak, and I started in my cynicism to just evaluate. But soon I realized there wasn't much to evaluate, that this message was brilliant, and it was actually convicting my heart. And I remember at the end of the service seeing all these people responding to his message and seeing this full auditorium. And I'm thinking, you have what I want. Later that afternoon, I took my kids and their cousins swimming. And at the pool, there was these guys that were the same age as me, walk by me. And I had my shirt off and they had their shirts off. Now, you don't need to see me with my shirt off. It's not a pretty sight, but their bodies. It was as if God, when he created them, had chiseled them like the rock behind me. It was like chiseled, chiseled, chiseled. And I looked at them. And I'm like, You have what I want, but I'm never gonna get that. But we do this all the time, don't we? We look around at people in our office, or look around at people in our lives, or look around at our sister who's a size two and we're a size fifteen, and we say, You have what I want. We look at a friend who's tells us once again about the promotion they got, and we've been through about five jobs in the last 10 years and we keep losing them instead of getting promoted we think you have the career that i want Uh, we always 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 look at what other people have and when we look at them with this envy it creates conflict and we go at them we criticize them we judge them like i was that pastor It's no wonder that Socrates once said envy is the daughter of pride, the author of murder and revenge, the perpetual tormentor of virtue. Envy is the filthy slime of the soul, a venom, a poison which consumes the flesh and dries up the bone. It rots us like cancer from the inside. It rots us like cancer from the inside because pride says you have what I want. And when we are living that way, when we think everybody else has what, what we want, we go after them to get it and we, conflict ensues. And so when we allow pride to take us down this road and to destroy our relationships, we say that life isn't giving me what I want or you're not becoming what I want or you have what I want, but ultimately what we're saying is God won't give me what I want. God won't do it. God won't give me what I want. And as a result, James says one of two things happens. We don't even bother asking God for help in our relationships because we don't think he cares about us anymore. Verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. Or we ask God, but we ask him to simply fulfill a wish list we have for these relationships. And when, we doesn't, when he doesn't answer the way that we assume that he should, We resent him as much as we resent the people that we're in conflict with. But the fault, James says, lies in us. Look at verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. And this happens all the time. We go to God in prayer and say, God, make him see it my way. Or God, make this relationship more fun for me. Or God, change her or change him. And we're not praying the prayer of David, which was, search my heart, oh God, see if there is any wicked way within me. See, God cannot, hear me well, God cannot and God will not answer a prayer that is focused on making my life all about me. And God cannot and God will not answer a prayer that is making your life all about you. And the reason he cannot and will not do that because God wants you to be about him, not you. Your life is to be focused on him. Seek first the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Jason, not the kingdom of Stephen, not the kingdom of Jennifer. No, seek first the kingdom of God. Then all these things will be added to you. Then your relationships will come into the line. Then and only then. But when we don't do that, God says, it's like you're cheating on me. It's like you're having an affair with yourself with me. Verse four, you adulterous people, he says you adulterous people. And James goes on and says, you actually become an enemy of God. And verse six comes in. And if we didn't get it by now, James says, God opposes the proud. When I live a life full of me, now don't miss this. God not only says I'm cheating on him, God not only says I'm his enemy. God says he's going to fight me. Now, I don't know what you think your chances are of winning a fight against God, but I've done it a lot of times, and I'm just telling you, I haven't won once, not even close. And that's sobering to think that when we live this life full of pride, God not only is going to allow our relationships to unravel into conflict but he's actually going to fight against us i mean what a sobering thought but thankfully that's not the end of the story for as much as god hates pride he loves he loves he loves he loves he loves humility that's why right after saying god opposes the proud verse six which is a quotation incidentally of proverbs three says this, James writes, but God shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. And then he goes on in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, I love what John Stott, the famous theologian says, he says, at every stage of our Christian development, pride is the greatest enemy and humility, our greatest friend. Pride is our greatest enemy. Humility, our greatest friend. And so what does this practically look like in our hardest relationships, to get rid of pride and say, I'm not going to have pride tear me down anymore. I'm not going to have pride tear this relationship down anymore. Instead, allow humility to lift us up and to lift our relationships up. Well, I think there's three steps we can take. Submit, resist, and admit. Submit, resist, admit. First of all, submit to God. Submit to God. Verse 7 Clearly it says, submit yourselves then to God. In other words, James is saying, remember that your life is not supposed to be full of you. It's supposed to be surrendered to God. You know, many of you know I'm in recovery and one of the 12-step prayers, in fact, it's called the third-step prayer, is this, God, I offer myself to thee to do with me, to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I might better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. In other words, God, I can't do this because I've lived this life of pride every day. In fact, I pray this prayer. I write that prayer every day in my journal. And the reason I write that prayer is because it's an act, it's a reminder to me that I have to in humility surrender to God. And when we do that in our relationships, when we say that my first step is I'm going to submit to God. It changes everything. Because that means that I'll come to you in our relationship and I'll say, just, I know we're not seeing eye to eye, but can we just pray about this? And not in a trite way, but can we just bring this to God? And, And it's amazing what will happen when you say that in a relationship, if you say that with a spouse, with a kid, with a boyfriend, with a girlfriend, with a co-worker. You just say, can we just surrender this? It means that in those relationships, submitting to him and drawing near to him may mean asking Christian friends or leaders or counselors for help. You say, you know, we can't figure this thing out and we want to honor God, but we need help. But sometimes in those relationships, you'll want to submit to God, but the other person won't. So my advice for you in that is you submit. How they respond is how they respond, but God will will honor your surrendering. God will honor your active submission to him. Now, it may not make the relationship better. It may actually divide it even more, but you can live with a clear heart saying, you know what, I have surrendered this to God, so submit to God. Second thing is resist the real enemy. Resist the real enemy, not the other person. Verse 7, James says this, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, we could say a lot about this verse, but here's what I, I think James is really good at. He's saying, that other person who's ticking you off right now, you think they're the real enemy, but they're not the real enemy. You may think your boss is Satan. He may even look like Satan, but he's not Satan. You may think your mom is Satan. She may look like Satan, but she's not Satan. You may think your boyfriend is Satan right now. He may have done the stupidest thing you could ever imagine. He may have said words that were so hurtful, but he's not actually Satan. You may think that your now teenage daughter, that some demon has infiltrated her soul because she's saying these things now and doing these things and not being the sweet girl she used to be. You may think that she's Satan. She's not Satan. And I know I'm saying this in a kind of half-hearted, half-joking way, but the reality is that so often in our lives we confuse the real enemy, we assume that the person we're in conflict with is the enemy. But he's not. And she's not. No, there is a greater enemy, scripture talks about, that fights in the spiritual realms against us, that a real enemy named Satan, who takes each of us, in our relationships and he takes us and he turns us against each other. And as he does that, he confuses our minds about the value and worth of the other person. And so now I only see this person over here as the hurt he has caused me, and he only sees me over here as the hurt he has caused him. And so we go at each other thinking that we are the enemies, but all along we are being held like puppets by Satan our real enemy. And I know that person's hurt you. I don't undermine that. I know that hurt is real and you're going to have to deal with that. But hear me well, within every single person is the image of God. No matter how deep down, no matter how hidden it is there. And so stop making them the enemy because not resist Satan. And he will flee from you. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. And when he flees from you, his hands get off the puppet strings of your relationships. And now the two of you who are fighting and going at it now can come together because you are no longer being controlled. To submit to God. Resist the real enemy, not each other. But third, admit what you've done wrong. Admit it. Just admit it. James takes a very morbid turn in verses 8 and 9. Look what he says. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, there's a lot going on here. But in a nutshell, James is saying this. You need to admit where you've gone wrong. It, you need to just come out and confess it. Because if you don't, the other person won't. And if you don't, that thing will still be in the way of your relationship. See, if we don't grieve now over the things we've done wrong in the relationship, we'll grieve so much more later when the relationship is over if we don't admit now and grieve now with our adult son and say i'm sorry for what i've done to push you away from our family then we'll grieve so much more later when he doesn't return our calls if we don't admit now and grieve now over the fact that our drinking or our addiction or our struggle with porn has actually caused us to pull away from our wife we'll grieve much more later when he, she says i'm done And as somebody who has grieved that, I am telling you, admit it now. Grieve it now. Deal with it now. Confess it now. See, God calls us to admit where we have gone wrong. So will you do that in your relationship? Will you come clean and say, I'm sorry for making this about me? See, here's the beautiful thing. James says in verse 6 that, When we do this, God gives more grace and he shows us more favor. He'll give us more grace and more grace and more grace. And those relationships that we thought were so far apart will all of a sudden start to come together. And humility and surrender will come and build us up. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. So let me ask you, who is it? Who is the person that during this message has been on the forefront of your mind? Would you today pursue that person in humility and say, can we just talk? Would you today send a text message saying, you know what, I've I've messed this up. I want to begin by saying, I'm sorry. Can we can we actually work this thing out? Would you today make room in your life that has been so full of you? Would you make room for other people? In humility, will you say, you know what? I need to submit, I need to resist, and I need to admit. And God, would you do the impossible in this relationship? Would you humble us before you and lift us up?